the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name's Richard Moore. G'day, Daniel Freib. Hello. G'day, mate. And g'day, mate, Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. It's truth. Three Aussie stage wins in a row. <laughs> Catalonia, mate. That's right, Daniel. Um, three, stone the, three, stone the crows. Three Australian... All right, that's enough. Three... <laughs> that's enough. Keep listening, Australia, please. Three Australian stage wins in a row in Catalonia. Um, we're back with our regular episode, midweek episode, falling hot on the heels. Well, not that hot on the heels, but falling a few days after our first episode of Arrive, which came out immediately after Milan San Remo. That is uh, something that we will continue through the monument. So the next one will be immediately after Tour of Flanders. And thanks very much for all the feedback on the first episode of Arrive. We'll maybe um, mention a bit of that later on. Um, but we're going to, in this episode, well, what are we doing in this episode, Daniel? It falls to me, does it, Rich, uh, to give us... I mean, I know your your head might be a bit foggy today. Oh, were, yes. Well, yeah, I mean, that was the most important. I was night. waiting for Lionel's uh, news roundup to interject that, yes, it was a very important day of Giro d'Italia preparations because I was down with um, the cycling podcast head of wine, uh, <laughs> Greg Devine from Divine Cellars, and we were curating... As opposed to head of wining, our, um, that, that, that yes. role is uh, filled by, by all three of us <laughs> at different points. Yeah. I was with Greg yesterday. Um, there were some very heated discussions took place over six or seven bottles of, not all were drunk, were sampled, six, seven, eight bottles of Italian red wine. Um, and yeah, we we finally, we finally whittled down the shortlist and we came up with our six wines for the uh, Giro d'Italia case, which will be revealed shortly. But that wasn't the question, was it, Rich? Do you want to know what was coming in the podcast? Well, we're going to be talking about... It should be. Can I just say, Daniel, sorry to interject, but that, you know, we all go to pro cycling stats for the start list for Grand Tour. It, it should have the cycling podcast collection of wine listed there, shouldn't it? After the final team. That'd be a nice It touch. really should. It really should. Um, <laughs> I know, Luke shocked. Talk, talking of pro cycling... We could put that on the website, no problem. <laughs> talking, I mean, talking of pro cycling... Unveil it day by over six days. Talking of pro cycling stats, don't ask me why. Last night I, I went down a, an Ed Valbus and Hagen-shaped rabbit hole and I was just... It, I couldn't sleep last night because... Um, I was still reeling from the revelation that Edward Bassenhagen has won 81 professional races. 81! Well, I mean, six bottles of wine wouldn't have helped 80... the sleep either. Never mind Edvald. Well, Don't blame Edvald Bosenhagen. 76 of them were the Norwegian road race and time trial national championships, admittedly. Um, Richard, the podcast. You asked me about the podcast this Remember week. But we're going to be talking about racing. We're going to be talking about cycling again. Um, we're going to be talking about the racing that's been going on in Belgium today. The one day of the Panna. What's it called now, Lionel? The official name? Uh, the Minerva Classic Bruger de Panna, it's now called. And the more simply titled Volta Catalunya, the tour of Catalonia. It is in English, isn't it? Catalonia, you say. And we're also going to be cleaning up um, or having a further debrief after Milan San Remo, which of course we covered in Arrive. But there have been some interesting tidbits, some interesting pieces of post match analysis, which we will reanalyze. And before all that, Lionel, do we have a news roundup, please? Well, before the news roundup, uh, Daniel, I can tell you that 29 of Edvald Boisenhagen's wins have taken place in Norway, either the National Championship Road Race for Time Trials, but also the Tour of Norway and the Tour de Fjord. So, and his last race win was at the Dauphiné in 2019. I was about to say. A long old also, winless streak for such a good rider, that, isn't it? Yeah, the extent of my, well, rabbit holing last night, I ascertained that he'd won five stages in the Dauphin over the years. I thought that might be, well, it's probably not a record. Um, probably Chris Froome or others in recent years have won similar number, but that's quite a lot, isn't it? For someone who, you know, was generally only winning one per edition. Shall we call this episode the Edvald Bosenhagen episode just to confuse people? Well, he hasn't won a race for Total Energies, uh, who he joined at the start of last season. So waiting to get off the mark. Maybe this spring will be... 
the time. He's racing in Belgium over the weekend, E3, and Gent Wevelgen are coming up, aren't they, at the weekend? A bit of a stretch to imagine he might win those, but you never know. Um, but yeah, how the long, news round. How long into this episode can we discuss Ed Van Agen? Come on, get on with it. <laughs> Five minutes and 12 seconds so this far. This is already significantly longer than a typical Edvard Boasenhagen interview. Um, I remember, I've told this story before, I'm sure I once interviewed him for 20 minutes and I transcribed the interview and it was 300 and something words. He uses very long words. Which is very few which words. Which is not very many. Well, the news roundup, I, I mean, it uh, starts with a pretty shocking incident on the first stage of the Volta a Catalunya, doesn't it? Um, Sonny Colbrelli, the Paris-Roubaix winner last October, went into that really exciting head-to-head, slightly uphill sprint with Michael Matthews, which Michael Matthews won uh, on the opening day. And then Colbrelli uh, collapsed after the finish line had a cardiac arrhythmia and required defibrillation and was taken to hospital. Um, The Bahrain rider is recovering and will travel home to Italy in a day or two or a few days. But a really shocking um, culmination to the opening stage of Catalonia. We'll talk a bit about that um, in the section which deals with the race in uh, northern Spain. As you said, three Australian stage winners so far. Does that make it the Volta down under? I don't know. But Michael Matthews had been followed by his young teammate Caden Groves, who clinched his first World Tour win at the end of stage two. And we've just watched stage three, won by Ben O'Connor of AG2R Citroën. And he has taken the general classification lead as well. Juan Ayuso was second, Naira Quintana third. Sergio Iguita fourth, so the GC battle is hotting up. Um, Not such a great day for Simon Yates, who crashed and lost a bit of time yesterday and, well, was dropped or sat up seven kilometres from the top of the climb at La Molina today. Um, There was some talk on... Meanwhile, in Belgium, we're... There was some talk on Italian Eurosport of him being overdressed, not in the sense that he was riding the stage in a tuxedo, um, but he might have been, he was, he was, he might have been too warm. But I think it's, it's more likely that he was ill. He, um, well, we, we all know there've been a lot of riders who have fallen ill in recent days and he even looked a little bit ill on the bike. He was coughing and spluttering. The Belgian World Tour race today, the Minerva Classic Brugge de Panna, or is it the World Cycle Path Championships? I mean, so many riders are up and over and on the cycle path and off the curb and over again. I mean, if you disqualified everybody who deviated from the actual race route, there'd be about four riders left, it seems to me. But Tim Malia won in a very, very close photo finish ahead of Dylan Groenewegen, and that continues the Alpes in Phoenix Riders' hot streak at the moment because he won Nokira Cursa a week or so ago and was third at the Coxider Classic last week. Uh, that's one of a number of smaller races that I'll update on. Um, we didn't talk about the Grand Prix Denan, did we? Because Richard, uh, we recorded before you headed off over there on a hot assignment to go and see Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vingegaard on the cobbles as they look ahead to the Tour de France, which of course will have cobbles on stage five. And well, they were well. Roglic was right in the thick of the action, wasn't he? In a group with uh, Narvaez, Sheffield, and Turner of Ineos. Uh, I think Damien Touzé was the other rider in there, and they were only caught in the last couple of kilometres by uh, the sprint teams that uh, set up Max Valscheid of Cofidis for the win. The following day, Cofidis got their sixth win of the season, thanks to. Uh, Anthony Perez, sorry, that was two days later, actually, but winners number five and six coming along for Cofidis in short order. Perez won ahead of Lewis Askey of Group Armour FDJ. And then the next day, Askey, who's had a really impressive uh, week or so, he was up the road with La Pera of AG2R in the Cholet Pays de la Loire uh, one-day race. And, well, they didn't quite make it to the finish. They nearly held off the bunch, but uh, dilly-dallied about a little bit on the run-in. It worked out well for AG2R, though, because Mark Sorrow won at the finish. There was a race in Italy the day after Milan-San Remo, Per Sempre Alfredo. Not a race I know a great deal about. Daniel, do you know much about this one? Well, this is a tribute to Alfredo Martini. Uh, we did our own tribute, didn't we, at the Giro last year, Rich? And uh, Martini, of course, was a, a legendary Italian national team selector. Won, I forget the exact number, but um, won lots of world road race titles um, as the team manager. And it's sort of... He's often described as the, the 
Corey was the sort of pontiff, the Pope of Italian cycling, almost the conscience of the Italian cycling scene. Um, yeah, I could. we should point people to our Kilometer Zero from the Giro last year. Um, for those who listened to it the first time, um, they might want to hear it again. And if you didn't, then yeah, that's a good introduction, I guess, to Alfredo Martini. Well, Mark, here she won the race for UAE, UAE's 20th win of the season, his first race day of the season and his first win since the stage of the Tour of Luxembourg in 2021. The racing continues in Italy with uh, Settimana Coppi Ibartoli, uh, Mauro Schmidt of Quickstep won the opening stage, Ethan Hayter has won the second stage for Ineos and his teammate Eddie Dunbar is now in the race lead. I mentioned the Coxider Classic, which Tim Malia was third in. Pascal Ackerman won that for UAE. I think that was makes that win number 19 for them before Hershey's win. Uh, Ackerman was uh, a faller in the final kilometre and a half today. Um, so ups and downs for Ackerman. The women's racing, the World Tour uh, race in Italy, the Trofea Alfredo Binder... Uh, quite a humdinger. I guess you'll talk about this in the Cycling Podcast Feminine. When's the next episode of that out, Richard? Next week, Lionel. Excellent. Well, the world champion, Italy's Elisa Balsamo, won uh, in the sprint, but it was a very aggressive final couple of laps, wasn't it? Lots of attacks. Italian 1-2-3 as well at the at the finish. Very impressive. Very impressive win for her, an important win for her as well as the world champion. Indeed. And lastly, should mention Lachlan Morton's ride, he rode a thousand kilometers non-stop from Germany through the Czech Republic and Poland to the border with Ukraine and has raised almost a quarter of a million dollars uh, for people who have been displaced by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, this was kind of fueled by the fact that Morton is teammates with Mark Padun, Ukrainian rider. And uh, he was moved to do something. And I was quite struck by his comments, really. He said, I'm not an overly political person. I'm not an expert in any of this. I'm just trying to do the one thing I know how to do and engage the bike riding community to help. My idea is to highlight the fact that the war is not a far off problem. Conflicts are a bike ride away all over the world. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. They support the cycling podcast through all our shows. Now let's hear a little bit from a rider who has been using Super Sapiens, Philippa Draper. She's been using the LibreSense Glucose Sport biosensors uh, from Super Sapiens and learning a lot about how to manage her fueling. Hi, I'm Philippa. Um, I'm a cyclist for Canyon Esports and Lacerx Pedal Mafia. Um, I'm also part of the Vox Performance Projects, which she runs in partnership with Super Sapiens and Precision Hydration. Well, it's sort of more for like endurance rides and especially because I used to race, like I still race a lot on Swift. So like getting the fueling right for that one hour of just like pure out effort was something that I'd never really seen a lot of because it was mainly just all the nutrition stuff on like how to fuel for like endurance rides and things like that. So it was really good for that and just avoiding bonking on those longer rides as well. Well, as you mentioned in your news roundup, Lionel, uh, the Tour of Catalonia, as we call it in English, um, got underway uh, with a really exciting finish to stage one. Um, Michael Matthews and Sonny Cobrelli head to head. Now, Cobrelli um, has been unwell recently, hasn't he? He pulled out Paris-Nice. Um, he was almost on the back of that group that went clear on day one at Paris-Nice uh, with uh, the three Yumbo Visma riders, but he was a bit under the weather there. He pulled out, um, he came back and, um, you know, looked to be back to almost his best to take on Michael Matthews in that finish, but then just beyond the line apparently collapsed. And well, the news was pretty shocking, wasn't it? Um, what I mean, what's being said in, in Italy, Daniel, about uh, what what he suffered and, and, you know, what his prospects are now? Well, there's obviously a certain degree of circumspection, kind of caginess about the actual details 
Um, obviously, there's medical confidentiality to take into account. So I think that's that's also affecting the way it's being reported. Um, you know, he's already said, I think he said to, to our friend Chiro, Scogna uh, Emilio, he's already wanting to get back to racing as soon as possible. Um, tests have taken place and what we've heard about the tests so far is that you know, they haven't really shown up anything of, of grave concern or anything that, you know, would normally have led to what occurred the other day. Um, I suppose, you know, a bit of a background on this in terms of the sort of screening and testing that takes place and that all of um, the World Tour riders have to undergo. Um, they have to, every two years, they have to undergo a, a pretty a pretty rigorous um, cardiac examination, either a Doppler echocardiography or a stress electrocardiogram and then every year they also have to undergo an electrocardiogram at rest Um, as I say that's for all world tour riders Um, in addition to that there's a there's a bit of a history in Italy of being very rigorous in terms of heart screening um, cardiovascular screening in sport and in athletics um most people will be familiar with what happened to the footballer Christian Eriksen, the Danish footballer last year at the European Championships where he suffered cardiac arrest during a game. He's now playing, I mean, he's playing in in the UK. He previously played for an Italian team, uh, Internazionale or Inter um, Milan, as they're known um, in the English-speaking world. And um, he ordinarily would have gone back to play for them or could have gone back to play for them, but was not allowed because the standards um, that players have to meet to play in the Italian professional leagues is higher than elsewhere. So he couldn't play with a defibrillator um, in Italy, but he can in the UK and I think a lot of other countries. Um, And on the the sort of cardiovascular screening or um, heart screening, um, Ericsson himself had done an ECG, as all players apparently had to, um, before the European Championships last year. So I suppose that just shows that that those tests themselves, however rigorous they are, they're no guarantee that things like this um, might happen. Of course, we saw in 2018, didn't we, um, the, the tragic death of Michael Goulartz of the Verandas Willems Crellen team, who initially people had sort of assumed or um, thought he had died in a crash, but it subsequently emerged that he'd actually suffered cardiac arrest or it was it was believed anyway he'd suffered cardiac arrest before that and you know going back further than that we've seen riders in races die of cardiac arrest or cardiac events before um you know on monday when this occurred um my mind raced back to a, a, a tragedy that occurred in 2000 Five when the Italian rider Alessio Galetti died also in a race in Spain um, in, in the Subida al Naranjo. Um, it was about 15 kilometres from the finish and he sort of just pulled up alongside or at the side of the road and died. Fortunately, um, Sonny Colbrelli appears to have had a, I wouldn't say lucky escape, but certainly a happy escape as far as we're all concerned. As far as we know, Colbrelli's condition is absolutely nothing uh, to do with COVID. We don't know that he's had COVID or not um, a lot of writers have now had COVID of course um, one who has is Tim De Klerk and he is out of racing at the moment with a condition called pericarditis is that the correct uh, pronunciation pericarditis inflammation of the heart lining and he uh, got that he started suffering from that um, having as he was returning from COVID, and and he thinks that this can be quite common. Um, it's also treatable and recoverable from, and you know he is on the mend and will be back soon. But De Klerk did did sort of say that there was a, a sort of almost an amerta around this issue. He said, "I hear I'm not the only one in the peloton. There are several riders who are going through more or less the same thing. In my opinion, it's a pity that they don't come out and break the taboo, because in in essence, there's nothing serious." going on. I mean, like I say, I'm not making a connection here with uh, Sonny Colbrelli because I don't know whether or not he's had, had COVID and whether there's any connection at all. But certainly an awful lot of riders are ill. An awful lot of riders are ill or have been ill with COVID. And, you know, in those in those circumstances, 
um, other health conditions can come to the surface, I suppose. Um, and it, it's a it's a pretty well, as Tim DeClerc said, the pericarditis is is pretty scary condition. Anything concerning the heart is pretty pretty scary. And the the news about uh, Sonny Cobrelli um, was was absolutely shocking, and will certainly have been a wake up call for a lot of people. Uh, and and for him as well, physically, he may well be able to return to racing, but you know, the, the, mentally, uh, it might be difficult to to to, to make a, a full recovery from that, at least in the short term. Yeah, Rich, and, and just on the issue of transparency again, um, not to make any assumptions about Cobrelli's case or what's happened with him at all, not to make any connection, but um, you know, I mentioned the the sort of standards and the, the kind of rigor that's shown in Italy towards any kind of um, anything regarding the heart or cardiac events. Well, the Italian Ministry for Sport has a protocol for athletes, athletes re- returning to competition after COVID infections. But, you know, there's a certain degree of sort of self-reporting involved here because even in that document I was looking at earlier, they make a distinction between symptomatic COVID and uh, non-symptomatic COVID and... You know, you, you would like to assume, and I think it's probably safe to assume that any sort of team doctor would carry out a proper examination and would make the proper distinction between symptomatic and non-symptomatic. But, you know, you can imagine a case of a rider, for example, who wasn't symptomatic, but not necessarily um, wanting to, you know, compromise a race program or compromise, you know, it might be in some cases their future with the team and, and therefore, you know, not reporting um, non symptomatic COVID and then obviously that becomes very problematic and potentially dangerous. As Tim de Klerk highlighted indeed yeah um, but the racing though fellas three Australian wins in succession which is extraordinary much needed wins for their respective teams um, Bike Exchange, Jayco and AG2R Citroen who only had their first win of the season uh, a few days ago that you mentioned in the news roundup Lionel Ben O'Connor getting their second and a big one uh, for him. Um, so yes, yeah, th- two teams that needed wins and 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 you know three riders who kind of needed wins. I mean, Michael Matthews certainly need a, needed a win, didn't he? Chaps, I was going to ask you before we go on this afternoon. Both of these, well, these two races were running pretty much in parallel, and um, this is a good litmus test of where your priorities, allegiances lie as far as sort of is it you know. European um, sort of southern European stage racing with beautiful landscapes, i.e. Catalonia, or were were you watching? Well, they, they weren't. It, it wasn't too sort of dura scene in Belgium today because it was beautiful weather, wasn't it? The sun was shining. <laughs> but did, were you watching Depana and Catalonia I on mean, delay the, the, or the other way around? Famously, public surveys can be skewed by the way the questions are answered, mm. can't they? So there we've got. Were we watching <laughs> beautiful Spanish landscapes or 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 uh, ugly Belgian? Cycle paths. Is that what you're asking, Daniel? That's basically the question. Basically. Yeah. Ordinarily I would have I would have double screened, but actually I've decided to not to double screen and, and have my attention divided. So I watched uh Depana. I worked out which one would finish first and I watched that one. That was uh the Belgian race, Depana, and then I watched um the recording of Catalonia. Um but I kept a kind of an eye on what was going on. Um, because I was watching on TV, You're I went, went more one to... way and the other during the ad breaks and so on. So I was I was across it all really. You're a man of more nuggety, earthy taste. I watched Catalonia live and then Depana, but that was because of the the circumstances of, of the races. I mean, uh, had there been crosswinds in Depana or you know something going on there, then I would have probably watched that instead. Um, but Catalonia was where there was a little bit more interest. In, in the race as it was unfolding. But, you know, we've alienated our Australian listeners and now our Belgian listeners as well. So um, thanks to the rest of you for keeping with us. Well, can I attempt to get our Australian listeners back on side um, by mentioning that I had, a, I had a nice conversation with Ben O'Connor at Paranese about Shane Warne. Um, Shane Warne, who sadly died a couple of weeks ago, the legendary Australian spin bowler. And of course, Ben O'Connor himself was a very keen cricketer. Hence why, while we were talking about what a loss it was for Australian cricket. But Ben O'Connor, um, had a quite a long chat with him at Paris Nice, just about, well, how things are going for him. And 
he he impresses me with how, or he certainly did. You know, I suppose it's easy, you know, talking five minutes before a stage start to to appear relaxed, but um, doesn't appear to be suffering any symptoms of sort of second season syndrome. Um, I know he's been a pro for a number of years, but he had a huge breakthrough last year and. With the way things have fallen um, at, at his team, AG2R, um, Citroën, there's a lot of, I guess, a lot of expectation, a lot of pressure on his shoulders this year. Um, you know, having succeeded to the extent that he did in the Tour de France last year, it, it will be difficult for him to to repeat what he did last year, which is not to cast aspersions on his, uh, on his ability. It's just a very, it's a very tall order. Um, but he, he seems to be, coping with it with with you know um in in exactly the right way and you spoke to him daniel before the start of stage two which was uh you know a very stressful stage crosswinds in which he coped extremely well i spoke to him at the finish um you know it had been a stressful day he'd done extremely well he'd finished up in the first echelon and uh then he fell ill and and he was out the race as well so he he mentioned in his post-stage interview today that he'd actually been very ill after Pioneers, but obviously the form was there and we saw that today and it's a really important uh win for him to have in the bag as you say given the expectation on him this year uh, that's a, that's a good one to get in the bag early season in a world tour stage race yeah i should just remind people of what happened during the tour last year because it feels like quite a long time ago but he was for a long while on that stage to teen he was the virtual leader wasn't he on the road uh you know basically pushing Pogacar out of the yellow jersey. He held on to win the stage, but didn't take the yellow jersey at the top of the climb and then finished fourth overall. And like you say, a a big breakthrough, but kind of a breakthrough having sort of, you know, put his pickaxe against the door the previous season by winning that stage of the Giro, um, which was kind of the stage win that almost helped us save the NTT team, wasn't it? Um, you know they were they were fighting for survival at that point. Ben O'Connor won that stage, which did definitely help out Doug Ryder in his quest to keep the team going. Uh, but of course, O'Connor himself moved across to AG2R at the end of that season. It's going to be a really interesting, chaps, over the next couple of days, just to see how Ben O'Connor acquits himself as the race leader. I mean. It's not the most mountainous edition of the Volta Catalunya. Tomorrow's summit finish, so Friday summit finish. It's a 13-kilometer uh, climb, I think, at 6%. Um, I, I suppose that will may be decisive, but then we've seen... We've seen things um, happen before, unexpected sort of turns of of events on that last stage, the traditional last stage, just outside um, Barcelona or in Barcelona, up and down the Montjuic Hill before. And I guess um, Ben O'Connor will be attacked from all sides if he gets through tomorrow in the leader's jersey. But um, Juan Ayuso, who I have, have... much to Lionel's amusement I've been talking about for the last few months the 19 year old uh, UAE Spanish prodigy um, who spent quite a lot of time in Catalonia I think he might have been born in Catalonia I always forget with him whether he was born in Catalonia and and raised near Valencia or raised uh, well the other way around anyway but um, he he won the sprint behind Ben O'Connor today and um, he could be, I would suggest, the, one of the favourites now to take the general classification. You asked the question about Michael Matthews and uh, this being an important win for him. And it's been a long time coming uh, back with uh, the Bike Exchange team, hasn't it? Because he, if you remember, he pulled out of his contract early to leave Sunweb at the end of 2020. His last race win was for Sunweb in August 2020, the Breton Classic. Hasn't won a race for Bike Exchange in the couple of seasons that he has been with them um but uh, yeah a, a big win on the opening day of the race for him uh, just a couple of things picked up from today's stage stage three ben o'connor won it of course uh, your favorite ayuso daniel was up there um but also i thought notable that tobias halland johannesson who we heard from on the podcast after he uh, got a win early in the season the you know x rider norwegian rider up there in some really impressive company that group of eight that finished 
well, seven just behind O'Connor, Ayuso, Quintana, Iguita, Almeida, Poles, Ciccone, Johannesson and Martin, Guillaume Martin. That's uh, a pretty select group. So um, a big step up from his previous race win for Johannesson. I, I think I've wa- I think Guillaume Martin has ridden every single race I've watched this year, apart from Depana today, <laughs> because and, he, and that was only because he was riding in Catalonia at the time. But he seems to be riding everything and finishing everything, as we know. He finishes every race, doesn't he? Just lastly, on and usually at some point, so usually at some point in every race, he dangles like a Christmas bauble between <laughs> the front of the race and that's the why you notice him. Just lastly, uh, on uh, the Volta a Catalunya, um, it's the, the best race leader's jersey of the year, I think. Uh, white with the narrow uh, dark green bands around the chest. And there's a little football connection, which I know you all enjoy, Daniel. Maybe you will as well, Richard, because it's almost Celtic-esque, isn't it? The green and white hoops. Um, but uh, the club that founded the race, which is the oldest uh, stage race in Spain, uh, the club that founded it, the Unio Esportiva Sants, uh, which is a district of Barcelona, basically, they also have a football team who play in the third division and they play in the same jerseys, white with those green bands just around the chest. Um, and the other jerseys in the race are variations on the same theme. I think the Young Riders one is orange and the Mountains one is red. Um, pushing it now, I can't remember. There's a blue one as well, isn't there? Well, that would be points, I guess. But yeah, top marks for getting away from yellow, which dominates, doesn't it, when it comes to leaders' jerseys. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2 Cycle Computer. And for a limited time, all of you listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with any purchase of a Hammerhead Carew 2. Go to hammerhead.io right now and use the promo code CYCLE at checkout. We'll put all the details in the show notes as well. Uh, We've both been using the Carew 2, haven't we, for quite a while now, Richard. I've just finished loading up, designing and and loading up all of my routes for my forthcoming trip. You can also import routes from Strava, Kamut and other mapping apps, can't you? But uh, how have you been getting on with the Carew 2? Well, I've been doing the same ahead of one of, of my forthcoming trip as well, Lionel. Um, I, I love it. I mean, I love the the nice, big, very easily visible screen. Uh, the fact there are only really two screens, you swipe between them, uh, map on one and all the stats on another. Uh, that's nice and simple. And I love the fact that the, the, the Hammerhead's brilliant at, at rerouting. So when you go off course or... When you want to add to the ride that you're doing, as I did yesterday, um, fancy just adding a little bit, uh, you just take a turn and it, it, it offers you sort of a, a different route, which can add a bit. And uh, it doesn't just tell you to turn around again, mm. which is nice. So, yeah, I really enjoy it. Really, really getting a lot out of using it. I also like when I'm doing a, a, a preset route that I've uh, uploaded to the Hammerhead uh, I just like knowing, say, for example, there's 800 metres of climbing on this ride. I like swiping to the other screen and just seeing, oh, I've done 600 metres of those elevations it, now. It, you, know, uh, you know when to attack, don't yeah, you, Lionel? Yeah, kind of... I do. I leave myself behind very easily with the Hammerhead crew. You wait too. for the gradient to, to steepen. So if you would like to add the custom colour kit and a premium water bottle to your purchase of the Carew 2, go to hammerhead.io and add all three items to your cart and then use the promo code CYCLE. It's a limited time offer exclusively for listeners to the Cycling Podcast. Uh, So don't forget the promo code. It's CYCLE. And as I said, we will put it all in the show notes and you can get your Carew 2, a free custom colour kit and premium water bottle delivered to your house. Turning our attention to... Belgium, lovely, beautiful Belgium, which is actually beautiful at the moment. The weather up in this part of the world, it's been not great in Spain, um, certainly earlier in the week, but up in northern France and Belgium, it's absolutely beautiful and set to stay for a few days at least. So I think we're going to get some nice weather for E3 and Ghent Wevelgem at the weekend as well. And uh, indeed, uh, the Women's World Tour race at the Pana tomorrow, in which I'm going to. But um, bathed in sunshine, Depana today and a sprinter's race. I mean, I mentioned that had there been crosswinds, it, it would have been a, 
perhaps a, a more interesting race to watch. As it was, it was a, a, a pure sprinters race, a very strong field of sprinters there. Tim Merlier winning again. Um, you know, Alpes and Fenix are just irresistible, aren't they, really? Um, almost three wins in consecutive days for Team Bike Exchange, Jaco. Um, but Dylan Grunewig and just edged out in second with Nasser Buhani popping up in third in, in very good company. And Max Walshide, obviously in great form, um, sprinting really well, having recently declared that he's turning himself into a time trialist. Ever since he said that he's becoming a time trialist, he's begun sprinting really well. So not sure Maybe what's going on there. Maybe if he put his arms um, in the time trial position, yeah, inspired he'd by, have found his way through that gap that he was trying to get through in the in the race for the line. <laughs> Maybe. Although he's a, he's a big unit, isn't he? But um, yeah, he's inspired by Victor Campenarts to, to to change direction, apparently. Um, very strong time trials as well. But what do we make of it, chaps? Um, I suppose a little bit of disappointment maybe for Mark Cavendish, who um, had Michael Morkov's wheel. They were quite far back coming into the finish. But in the end, Morkov, as he so often does, seemed to get it just right. And had Cavendish been on his wheel, it might have been a, a really good lead out. I don't know, but um, Cavendish by then had lost the wheels, so or given up the wheel. I'm not quite sure. What were your thoughts on it? Yeah, I thought that well, Cavendish was about more or less in the right position, maybe a little bit too far back with about 1.5 kilometers to go, and then he just um, didn't get into the right spot with sort of six, seven hundred meters to go when the when the lead out men were sort of assembling at the front and uh, ready to sort of catapult their men. But it's it's tricky, isn't it, for him because you know all eyes are on him when he does get the the opportunities to prove the well. You know, I'd, we shouldn't harp on too much about this battle with. Um, Fabio Jakobsen but you know let's harp on a bit more about this battle with Fabio Jakobsen um, but you know everyone is watching and everyone is including us we're looking at the lead out train that he's being given and uh, when he does get picked for a race and he has Morkov and he has you know some other components of what's what might be perceived as the the A team lead out, then expectations are even higher, and you know pressure is put on him to sort of prove that he is still king of the hill, I suppose, as it um, as it were. But you know, I suppose what he would probably love to have is a run in a stage race uh, of three or four stages or three or four days, where uh, you know he can kind of find his range with that lead out train but at the moment these opportunities are coming in ones and well they're, they're isolated aren't they um he gets an opportunity and then he has to wait two or three weeks for another one which is quite tricky i would suggest he must be looking forward to the giro then yeah and i think well i think the tour of greece uh, he's an ambassador for that race the tour de hellas are they calling it the tour de hellas or the tour of hellas um in the last week of april which has sort of been um, organised or part organised by his coach Vassi at um, Quick Step Alpha Vineland Cavendish is an ambassador I, at least two or three of the stages there are going to be for sprinters so maybe maybe there What about the race itself I mean the scenery was lovely wasn't it through the um, through the sand dunes and well there was a golf course I mean I thought Daniel would yeah, have liked that quite but I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, sprinters races in the World Tour, there's not too many one day races designed specifically for sprinters, but I still think there's probably too many, actually. I mean, the Great Ocean Road Races one that hasn't been held for a couple of years because of COVID. Then there's this one. Dwarsdor Vlandering can sometimes fall away of the sprinters. And then there's the two in Germany, isn't there? Eschborn, Frankfurt and the Hamburg Cyclassics. Uh, the thing about this one is it's it's not really a sprint race to the finish line it's the sprint race to the bit where it goes narrow and then suddenly um well it's like trying to shove a rabbit through a garden hose i mean there's just not enough room for everyone to get through when it goes all narrow in between the tram line and the, the raised curb um and so you get this sort of distorted almost double finish i think and if you're out of position that point as a number of the sprinters were i think sam bennett is another one that was too far back going into the into that um it, it's kind of a, a a race of two halves and i also think that you know there's a temptation to back off when there's bigger objectives um to to go for it's not really worth risking absolutely everything 
Um, so if you're not, if the riders aren't right at the front and in position A for the final sprint finish, I think basically they call it a day at, at that point. And I think that's probably what Cavendish did really, because they came into that crucial last bit just too far back, and he and he just sat up. He's not going to pick his way through from twenty fifth back, and uh, leave it to the to the riders that did manage to get into, well, get through the garden hose in the first positions. Just before um, we get more correspondence from us Australian listeners, I don't think the Great Ocean Road Race is a sprinter's race. I mean, if you look, I mean, Dries, that great bunch sprinter, Dries Devenins, um is the last winner of that race. Um, but there there have been years when it's finished a sprint and years when it hasn't. So I think it's it's not that you can categorise it as a sprinter's right. race. Okay, all right. Sorry, Australia but, again. Well, I don't think it's necessarily is wrong that... to have a sprinter's race or a race that could go one way or the other. Yeah, I suppose that's that's more in the balance, isn't it? Much more in the balance. But um... Has Edvard Boasenhagen ever won it? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. You can, have a, you can have a great, great ocean race in Norway on the, what do they call it? The Atlantic Road. One of the most spectacular roads in the world. Daniel looking wistful as he thinks about all the possibilities mm. of Edvard Bosenhagen winning. <laughs> I think I'm just thinking of the, um, Elia Viviani won the Great Ocean He did Road win race, it one he? year, yeah. yeah, yeah. So did Peter Kenyuk. That. that was definitely a um, Yeah, it was. Uh, so, yeah, Nikias aren't one. Well, anyway, we're going down another rabbit hole here. Um, what did we learn from today then? Any, anything at all? I mean, it was messy. There was a, a crash um, towards the finish. Pascal Ackerman, who got an important win for him a few days ago, hasn't had the easiest of starts. Sam Bennett, again, not really there, um, but riders were held up by that crash. So it's, it's hard to know what to read into it. But despite all that, you know, despite the complicated finish, despite the crash, Alpes and Fenix are incredibly good at getting whoever their sprint arms to be. It could be Astra Phillips and it could be Tim Merlier into the right place and, and winning. And it is one of the remarkable stories, I think, of the last couple of years, that team's success. You know, they... If you look at, you know, they're right up there in, in the world rankings and they're not a world tour team. And, you know, I think this, even at the start of last season, a lot of people would have called them a one-man band, Matthew van der Poel. And they are certainly not that. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by Science. Thanks very much indeed to our longtime sponsor, Science and Sport. If you would like 25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the discount code SISCP25. Certainly needed my Science and Sport products on Sunday. I had a bit of a shocker um, on my ride, a double bonk. Uh, I shared some data with you, didn't I, Lionel, on that? It was mm. a terrible experience. So I shared my data. So I'm like, who does sound like? Anyway, um, Science and Sport got me through. So if you want 25% off, go to scienceandsport.com and use the discount code SISCP25. You know, you've got some nice jerseys on your wall, uh, Lionel. You mentioned you like the Catalonia jerseys, but you've got Fagor. Um, it looks like a Convicts jersey. I have a Convicts jersey or a, a, a Queen's Park jersey. That's actually a Queen's Park jersey, yeah, uh -huh. inspired by the Queen's Park Football Club in Glasgow. The Fagor jersey is actually, that's the first... Uh, cycling jersey I ever owned. I bought oh. it in 1988 uh, from Jeff. Mark Elliott, did you? Uh, or Sean Yates or Robert Miller or Stephen Roach had joined them, hadn't he? Although he was world champion. Uh, so they were my kind of first, uh, mm. the first cycling team jersey that I bought, uh, obviously in a child size. Can't quite squeeze into that. Uh, so I bought. Uh, getting closer with the thought. <laughs> I bought an adult size one on eBay. A few weeks ago, and it uh, yeah. it turned up. Uh, well, well it speaking took a long time. of, I bought it from of... someone in Poland. I didn't realise that the person was in Poland until I bought it, and it it took about a month to get here. Fago were very popular in Poland. Speaking of cycling jerseys, um, our new collaboration with Map is uh, is well a very exciting development this year, and we will be. I think next week we could probably tell you all um, what that will entail um and there'll be a there'll then be a slow reveal over over several I hope weeks it's not, um but it's it's been great fun slow reveal of clothing i don't like the sound <laughs> of that 
I mean, almost as almost as troubling an image as me talking about rabbits being shoved yeah. through garden hoses. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 well, I think I think people will enjoy it. Lionel um, Bernie and Richie Moore like showgirls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let your imagination do the rest. Um, thanks very much to everybody who has got in touch about Arrive, um, our new show, sort of looking back at the the monuments shortly after they've happened episode one went out at the weekend we've had lots and lots of correspondence for people so thank you we've read it all um uh, just to name a few names uh matthew weber dan logan christine peterson julian rathbone paul w james middleton paul roland eric mcintyre evan drucker shardle really interesting email from you evan thank you helen dent uh, johnny mcleod and David Gregory, to name just a few, um, there there were others as well. Chris Dobbs. All those so, people hated it. All those yeah, they all hated it. Hated Everyone it. else liked <laughs> it. <laughs> joking, um, joking. Chris Dobbs um, got in touch. A few people got in touch, suggesting equivalents of "Tale of the uh, Tap" or uh, "Tale of the Tapa." Um, and for the monuments, the the muse on the monument. Someone else suggested monuments. Quite like that. The monuments mm. that could work. Montage um, of the monuments I saw as well. Somebody suggested, it's quite a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Um, yeah, monuments maybe. Um, now, also we heard from Chris Andrews, who got in touch with you a while ago. He is a teacher of science uh, in Sydenham, and he was the guy that suggested the the cycling podcast Moonshot that we all gather together on Strava and together try and reach the mo- the moon. Uh, metaphorically speaking um so he, he emailed us with an update on that um an update on the mission to the moon progress has been slow so far due to lack of numbers six hardy cosmonauts set off at the start of the year and our elevation gain so or actually cogmonauts maybe that's maybe that was intentional sorry cogmonauts uh, our elevation gain is so far is a measly 20 kilometers which at least gets us into the stratosphere but no higher as daniel will know um as far as I know, anyone who follows someone in the challenge can join the challenge, so it's a bit of a critical mass situation. So just look for the Cycling Podcast on Strava and sign up there to the Moonshot. Uh, we also had an email from Matthew Lawrence, um, who uh, apologises that his email's no relevance to cycling at all. Um, that's that's fine. Um, he uh, enjoyed Arrive, that's nice. He also um, has recently discovered uh, 0.5 playback, where you can slow down the episode and he's got a lot of amusement out of this i found lionel's slurred monologues the most entertaining i'm not sure why i think it was the mental picture they caused my mind lionel recording the story of the race after returning from a pub in not watford at midnight eyes drooping head face down on the desk after a few too many ales anyway he recommends uh listening to the podcast at half speed i don't because i've tried that um anyway don't do it now we're about to uh, return to Milan San Remo and pick up any loose ends from the race won by Matty Moric with his dropper seat post. And I said it in Arrive that the moment where he, he left the road at the start of the descent and bunny hopped back on was the moment that he perhaps won the race because Pogacar, I think, got spooked by that. But, you know, studying it further, did he leave the road because he had just activated the dropper seat post for the first time? I think that that's possible that in that moment of um, distraction, he uh, his line took him off the road a bit. So there was almost a cost to using it there, I think. That's unconfirmed. But, you know, uh, in the end, it, it, it did the job, didn't it? And a lot of people, it has been legal since 2014, as the UCI clarified, and we probably see people use it. I mean, I use it on my mountain bike and on a steep climb, it makes a big difference. Legal since 2014, Rich, but not prior to that. How do we know this? Because Matej Mohoric was not the first rider to try to attempt to use it. Um, how do I know this? Because I had some correspondence as well this week from a good friend of the podcast, Rory Mason, or Mazzini, as he likes to refer to himself, um, a real Italophile Rory, um, he is in Iowa now, but he was once the sponsorship manager, sponsorship director for Cannondale. He worked very closely with the Liquigas team, and earlier this week, he sent me a message about a telescopic seat post, drop a seat post, having been brought to a race before. Ciao a tutti, this is Mazzini from Iowa in the U.S., 
Regarding the hot topic of adjustable seat posts, uh, FSA was an early mover in this area, going as far back as 2011, when a certain independent engineer, Angelo Morelli, brought his design to them for an adjustable post, and FSA's Claudio Mara found willing testers in Vincenzo Nibali and Ivan Basso. Their system moved 15 millimeters in increments of one millimeter and was activated by twisting a collar uh, of the post by hand. So each click was a millimeter up or down. I think in Nibley's case, it might have been tested for descents like we saw this past weekend. But for Basso, I think it was more used for different pedaling cadence or power needs. Yvonne's bike was fitted with this post first and uh, showed up in public at the 2011 Tour de France. But as it was not on the market, at the time, the UCI quickly gave the team a decisive nippa, and they were not seen again. So there you go, chaps. What do you make of that? What do you make generally um, of the well, the, just the general excitement and the sort of hyping by some of it by Mohoric himself. Sort of, he was almost um, singularly attributing his win to this, um, you know, this gadget. Um, seems to me that it might have made, well, we talk a lot about marginal gains, don't we? It probably did make um, some difference, whether it was the difference between him and Anthony Georgis at the finish line, I'm not sure. Shades of Graham O'Brie for me, because, uh, you know, O'Brie uh, was a great tinkerer, a great experimenter, somebody who put a lot of thought into what he did. And when the UCI banned something, he merely came up with a different solution. And that's what Mohoric has done here, because... You know, he was sort of most famous, perhaps, for the, um, you know, the, uh, the 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 Superman tuck. Do we call it? Certainly, sitting on the top tube and pedaling. I remember him doing that to win the world uh, under twenty three title in Florence in twenty thirteen. And he's always been a, you know, descending has been his his secret weapon, I suppose. And in light of the ban on that position um, last year, he's come up with a. An ingenious solution, something that's been used for a long time in in mountain biking. But it does, you know, arguably it, it makes descents safer. Um, not if you're not if you're tackling the way that he tackled the Poggio, perhaps. Um, but you know, I think I thinking about it now, it was a real, a really, and, and the more you hear about the thought and the preparation that had gone into it, the more impressive it is actually because. Um, you know, he so knew that it was his moment and everything about it seemed calculated. The way he rode the podgy, the way he bridged the cross over the top, he knew exactly what he was doing and when he was doing it. And seen in that light, it, it becomes even more admirable, I think. And and I really, I look at it as one of, one of the great kind of swashbuckling moves in cycling. You know, you don't, you don't need to, it doesn't need to be on a climb or in a sprint. You, you can perfectly legitimately win a race on a descent and that's what he did. And, uh, I think, yeah, I think it it, go, it will go down as as one of the great, um, one of the gr- the brilliantly most brilliantly executed moves to win a monument. Yeah, I think uh, for anyone who's wondering what on earth we're talking about, the dropper seat post. I mean, just in case you're not familiar with either Mohoric's uh, antics on Saturday or mountain biking, basically it just it's a seat post that can you can adjust the height whilst riding along basically and uh, uh, so you give the rider the optimum seat position for the climb and then the optimum uh, and lower seat position for the descent and this is a response as you say Rich to the UCI banning the um, the, 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 the frankly quite dangerous looking super tuck position um, introducing the rule that, that says that uh, you know, hands, feet and backside have to be, you know, two of the three have to be in contact with the bike at, um, at any one time or however they worded the rule. But they, they've come up with a rule to stop riders from sitting on the top tube. And one of the reasons for that is they don't want young, impressionable riders uh, or people on the open road to take that sort of risk, I guess. I, I suppose that the chance of uh, people mimicking what the pro riders do uh, it does mean that the rider isn't quite as in control of the bike and it is an innovative response to a redrafting of the rules and i suppose it shows a difficulty for the uci in uh, drawing up rules that uh, because the, the teams the riders and the bike manufacturers will find innovative solutions um to the you know the ever-changing problems the ever-changing challenges and the ever-changing quest for as you say rich those marginal gains that can um aid performance in theory chaps you could have 
telescopic stem, head tube. You could have all sorts of micro adjustments to get you into a an ideal position on a descent, couldn't you? It would be a bit. It would become a little bit fiddly, but <laughs> plausible. Um, yeah, I mean the dropper seat post has been around as a piece of technology for a long time and is used, you know, very safely and and you know it lowers your center of gravity so therefore it makes descending safer and um, ultimately you know most most for certainly you feel that on a mountain bike you know you, you go from having quite well, in my case quite a high center of gravity to feeling far more stable on the bike um and so as a safety thing i think there's there's a sort of justification for using it i'm sure the uci uh would <laughs> come down pretty hard on bikes that transform themselves into sort of HPV type vehicles. <laughs> if that's what you're suggesting, Daniel, uh, you know, I think they'll be keeping a close eye on other innovations like that. You mean like a sort of inspector gadget type, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the handlebar suddenly just moving slowly away yeah, from the rider think... and the back getting lower and flatter. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'd be in favor of that. <laughs> Overall. Possibly, uh, possibly more pertinent, and maybe more pertinent to why Matei Moritz won. Um, one thing we mentioned in the run-up to Milan San Remo was the ability of riders who lived in Monaco and on the Côte d'Azur to practice on uh, the Poggio. And uh, one quote that particularly grabbed my attention from the interviews that Moritz gave after his victory was that he, he said he'd done the Poggio thousands of times. Um, he'd been, he was doing these four hour rides, which consisted solely of going up and down the, the Poggio. Um, and I was actually looking back at the, the role of honor of Milan Tamarino. I mean, there's not, I, I wouldn't say yet that um, there's a really strong correlation with living in Monaco and winning Milan to Roma. I mean, there is because the best riders in the world tend to live in Monaco for um, for various reasons. You know, um, training. It's not, it's not just access to you, is it? <laughs> well, ex exactly. But there have been a few. There have been a few. Matt Goss, I'm pretty sure, lived in Monaco. Simon Gerrans, um, Michal Kwiatkowski lives yeah. down there mm -hmm. as well. It hasn't helped Peter Sagan win it yet, though. <laughs> just before we go chaps I mentioned earlier our collaboration with MAP and a rider who's being sponsored by MAP this year is Finlay Newmark uh, formerly uh, on, on the road to a world tour contract but he's taken a different path and uh, we've heard a bit from him last week about his recent trip to Rwanda if you want to find his uh, videos which are absolutely excellent go to his YouTube channel Finlay Newmark that's Finlay with an E and Newmark um, on YouTube absolutely really great stuff from Rwanda in particular. Let's hear another little bit about that trip to Rwanda. It was a thousand kilometers there or thereabouts. I think it was like 990 or something. It was like 16,000 meters of climbing. I think total we did about 50 hours of ride time and it was a mix. So there were options. Um, the organizers of the race around Rwanda had created this route and had given options for accommodation that you could take in the evening but there were also camping options each night so we did a mix depending on uh whether we needed kit dry whether it had been raining in the day um or whether it kind of felt like it was worth camping like if we felt we were going to get an extra experience from it then we definitely camped because uh yeah we're you're only in Miranda a few times in your life so well that was Finley Newmark a fellow map athlete just like us and uh if you want to check out Map's clothing, go to map.cc, M-A-A-P.cc. And as I say, we'll be uh, revealing details of our collaboration with Map in the next week or so. Um, we'll also be returning next week with another regular episode. Before that, we've got an episode of Service Course with Tom Wally and Lizzie Banks. Lizzie returns to racing on Sunday at Ghent Wevelgum. I'm eager to see how that goes for her. And the second podcast, Femina, will be back next week as well with a feature on why there are so few Belgian women in the Women's World Tour. I mean, how many how many Belgian riders do you think there are in the Women's World Tour, Lionel? Well, now you've said that, very few. Um, <laughs> well, I kind of, I kind of, yeah, kind of gave you a clue there, didn't <laughs> yeah. I? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I'm I'm guessing you're uh, disproportionately few when you consider how many Belgian male riders there are in the World Tour. So I guess that's the angle you're looking three. at. 
of, of, of about, 100, about 195 riders, only three wow. of them are Belgians, um, which is absolutely remarkable. So we'll be digging into that a bit next week um, and finding explanations for that and what they're doing to try and change that. But we'll be back next week as well with a regular episode looking back on E3 and uh, Catalonia and Ghent Wevelgem. Um, until then, thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, chaps. Thank you, Lionel. Thank you. You've been listening to The Cycling Podcast with Lionel Burney, Daniel Freib and Richard Moore. To become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear and this episode was produced by Hugh Owen. <laughs>